Oh, wait a second. Wait, no, shut up for a second. Uh, no, that's in the corner back by the wood piles coming on. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome back for the conclusion of our conversation with Aaron A. Train Smith. On this episode, we'll talk Mr. Smith's stint with the 77s, Romeo Void and Rich Mullins, his spiritual journey and thoughts on theology, and what musically he's working on these days. You'll have to extend me some grace on this one because even though I really love drums and percussion, I'm not a drummer, so I don't know the mechanics or terminology. None of that stops me from attempting to ask technical questions of Aaron anyway. So just roll your eyes at me and enjoy it the best you can. Okay, this guy, Alan Dawson. Mm-hmm. Two... Most people who don't understand drumming, and I would probably be one of them, it's hard for us to understand the science of technique and why you would, other than keeping a beat, why would you need to go to, to study? And what did uh, Mr. Dawson teach you differently that you couldn't have learned from watching other drummers or from listening to records? Hmm. He taught me the how, the how to. It's like you can hear, listen to a record and you can, and you can probably try to mimic it get it down that way but he was a guy who was doing it and was an innovator in it and he could tell you just how to do it and it would cut to the chase because he's very disciplined he had all these things uh, technique developers that he had come up with he had a system ways to develop that jazz drumming technique uh, into four-way independence you know um, the ride cymbal technique how to what they call comping a solo you know when the saxophone player or some other instrument is soloing and you're doing a jazz tune just the independence because the ride cymbal has a response ride cymbal is really the thing the voice and the flow of the drumming and jazz drumming. And you got your hi-hat here and then, you know it used to be like really um, you know ding 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 and the bass drum would would uh, they what they call ghosting the bass drum you know, boom 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 right. and the hi-hat on two and four uh, but back in the early days like in Duke Ellington and all those guys the bass drum was a little bit bigger because you had the big band and they had to feel the pulse, so right. it was a little bit louder. But then when you get to like a jazz quartet, you know, you don't have the loud bass drum, but you know, you ghost the bass drum because it really gives the drummer a feeling of time. But then too, there's another technique where you don't ghost. Every limb has is a separate voice of its own, and you create a flow, a rhythmic flow, and a rhythmic language with those four limbs. But the ride symbol is like leading the way. And then you comp with the hi-hat and, and the bass drum and the snare. 
and he had techniques to develop all that. In time, would you end up developing your own technique that was like specifically Aaron Smith? Yes. Okay. Uh, hopefully that's what everybody does, you know, right. who studies. And that's, I think that's every teacher's goal is just to give the student tools to develop their own style. And Can you give an example? Because you've taught drums. Mm -hmm. right? uh, something that you, you feel like <clears throat> you can uniquely teach a drummer. There's some things I could probably teach. I wouldn't say that they're mine, but I, I obviously got them from somewhere or heard it from somewhere, you know. But um, there, there are some uh, funk techniques I could teach, and I could teach Allen stuff. Right. You know, um, matter of fact, that I'm trying to discipline myself to to do just that. Maybe have a YouTube channel where I actually display some of the techniques that Alan Dawson taught and why, mm -hmm. why you do this and why you do that, you know. Okay. Career-wise, okay, you're in California. Mm -hmm. You start to work with musicians that are part of a little circle, and they're kind of centered around a church called mm -hmm. The Warehouse. Mm -hmm. And those musicians would be, for example, Charlie Peacock, uh, Jimmy Abegg, Mike Rowe. First of all, did you attend that church in time? I know you weren't a Christian initially, but... Yeah, okay. I did. I did attend that church. What are some of your memories of that church in that, how do you think it became such a uh, stew of just wonderful musicians that would go on to influence so mm. many people in and out of the Christian music industry. One reason, it was all really great artistic people, uh, the, the musicians, Mike and Charlie and Jimmy, and all the other guys, Jan, and very keen on music history, you know. The church first started meeting in um, an apartment. Mary Neely would have Bible studies because Lewis was an evangelist. Her husband. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon, uh, the Bible study just started growing and growing. And I guess they, at some point they decided to, you know, Lewis would stay home and, and they plan a church. They had a recording studio. They got this, th this vision because of uh, Mike tells a story when he was still living at home. He had a band that he was in and I think at some point they opened for... Um, Jerry Lee Lewis's brother, what was his name? Jimmy Swagger? Jimmy Swagger, yeah. And the kids went crazy. Um, but Jimmy went crazy too, because didn't he preach against rock and roll? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I think maybe Mary Neely and, and Lewis were there. Mm -hmm. They eventually talked Mike into moving up to Sacramento because, you know, they had this vision to do music with him. And so I don't know how the other guys got there and met them, but when I got there, I got there through Charlie. I had moved to Sacramento to play in this band called Thunder Wonder. We played the clubs around Sacramento. Uh, we did a record for this group called Gray and Hanks uh, down in L.A.
played in Tahoe, and that's how I met Charlie, just by living in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Bunch of musicians. The music community there was just like intense, you know, and it was great, mm-hmm. you know, because we all played together in each other's bands, you know. Same people in a band plays, play clubs every night, just change the name of the band. This is before Charlie became a believer. Mm-hmm. So Charlie's in this community. He becomes a believer. The Neelys wanted, want him to come out, and so they're supporting him, you know, giving him the studio, do anything you want, write. You know, he, so he starts bringing in people from the community. That Not, maybe aren't Christians. Right. Yeah. Myself being one of them. They were getting ready to do a Vector record because Charlie was in, initially in Vector. Steve Griffith, the lead vocalist and bassist, can play drums, and he wanted to make the record playing bass and drums and singing lead, and it wasn't working. So Charlie told Mary about me. I, was, I had moved back to San Francisco at that time. So I said, sure, I came up to, by the time I got to Sacramento, Charlie had quit because he wanted to do his own thing. Mm-hmm. And so it was just me, Jimmy, and the bass player. We go in, learn the songs, and record the songs. Um, it took about two weeks. It's in every heart. It's a happy world. With a brand new start. Oh, it might look good. While I'm there, I meet Mike and those guys. Mike Rowe? Yeah, Mike Rowe and Jan. Jan Vols. Man, I thought they were the corniest guys. <laughs> you know. <laughs> In what way? Because they were kind of new wavy? Well, at first they were Christians. Uh-huh. And they were so clean cut. I remember watching this video of them playing at Greenbelt outside of London. And I heard this music that sounded great and it sounded really like rocking but then when I saw who was doing it it was these like really clean cut guys and they were just standing there and the sound was coming out but the beings weren't in it that's right you know what I'm saying <laughs> they're just playing all the right notes and stuff but they weren't jumping around right or, yeah right. okay And I uh, went, dang, you know, I guess that's cool. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, after we finished the uh, Vector record, because I was there every day, I was staying with, who did I stay with? I stayed with somebody. Anyway, I was there every day, all day, mm-hmm. you know, doing in the studio. And so I was in the kitchen, and the kitchen was connected to the offices. Mary's office and Jan's office, because Jan was like executive producer. It was Mary's baby. Lewis's office was on the other side of the building, uh, where all the ministry business and all that sort of stuff took place over on the other side of the building. And so I was there. Lewis would come over to see how things were going, and we talk. Uh, We had this great thing, man. Like every Monday, they went shopping at Costco. By all this... uh, candy mix, like M&M's mixed with peanuts and raisins. And they were into this thing uh, making strawberry smoothies out of uh, soy and, um, and frozen strawberries. Uh-huh. And, I mean, just whatever you wanted. It was there. It was great. It was 
I thought it was a great family hang, you yeah. know. And so I go back to San Francisco, and a couple of weeks later, Mary calls me and goes, uh, well, the Sevens have an opportunity to go to Wales, Prestatin, Wales, for two weeks to play for this Pentecostal retreat. And their drummer can't go because he's got a job and, you know, he can't leave the job. He's got five kids and, you know. Man. And so, would you be willing to go? And she told me how much I was going to get paid and all that sort of stuff. And, and I said, sure. So she said, well, we'll need you to come up and practice with the guys. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did. I practiced, went up there, practiced. We even did a couple of gigs together. We went down to L.A. and did this gig at some club that was dedicated to U2. And so it was like all these U2 fans in there. And that's all they talked about. Wow. You know, did you see Larry's new Cadillac? Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um, yeah, it was crazy. But we used to talk about spirituality because I had a guru at the time. Mm -hmm. We never had an argument about it or anything. You know, so I go over to Prestad and they got all these great speakers, uh, one being Ravi Zacharias. Mm -hmm. So I'm listening because, you know, if you can't make it to the building where they're speaking, they have a television station within the, the complex mm -hmm. or, you know, the, every bungalow you know, has a TV and it's connected, and you can watch on TV. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this one night I was I was uh, listening to Ravi, and I was going, why is he a Christian? You know, he's, he's East Indian, you know. I thought they had it, you know. They had it together. They had it together, <laughs> you know. What's with this Christian thing? I, so I was intrigued, uh -huh. you know. And so I listened to him for a couple of nights, and... Uh, so one night, uh, we went to hear this band that was playing. It was late at night. And I was standing by. Oh, yeah, we had started rehearsing for All Fall Down record. Because, okay, when, you get, when we get back to the States, we're going to do this record. Mm -hmm. So every day we were rehearsing for mm -hmm. the record. And so we got to know the, the people at the concert venues really well, you know, the engineers and stagehands and stuff like that. Because we go in there every day and use the gear and, and write songs and practice songs. And that night we went to the show. I went and stood by the sound guy because, you know, I knew him. And um, I wasn't a Christian yet. So I was kind of like, I went back and hung out with him, you know, and didn't get in the fray. I don't know. I don't know what happened. But... Uh, there was just a moment where it all made sense to me, and I believed, standing there, you know. And the weirdest thing is, like, the the sound engineer, when I said yes, when I went, yeah, okay, yeah, yes, you know, to my in my heart, to myself, he passed out and hit the floor, and it was this Literally. big commotion. Yeah, this is big commotion. Oh, uh, uh, you know, because. It made a big thud, and people started running over. And, you know, we lifted him up and took him out into the hallway, you know, and you know, did, undid his shirt and stuff, you know, and because he was still breathing, you know, and we were trying to make him come, get back, give him some air, you know. And so that was my conversion thing. <laughs> Somebody else passes out, not even you, right? Because right. you're like, that's cool, I like Jesus now. <laughs> right. And so... Uh, the next, I went back and I told the guys, and we had this guy 
uh, with us from church named Don. He would always, he was like a chaperone for mm -hmm. us. So Don said, hey, man, I got a Bible. I'll sell you my Bible for $5. Sell it to you? Man. <laughs> so, you know, I said, sure. You know, I gave him five bucks, and that was my first Bible. And uh, it was so crazy because when we, when we were leaving that last day, all the founding fathers came over to our bungalow. Me and Mark Tootle had just gone out and bought this huge bottle of Red Bull wine or something. And it was huge. <laughs> and we had it in the refrigerator because it was, was going to be the last night. And so we were just going to, you know, have some fun. Uh -huh. That's all, you know. Yeah, we weren't going to get drunk or anything. We were just going to have some fun because we were going home. And they come over and they start talking about, you know, talking to us and telling us how disappointed they are in us. You've done well. We thought you were going to do this and that and that. You know, Mike Rowe had these kids wrapped around his finger. You know, they'd be standing at the door in the morning waiting for us to wake up, waiting for Mike to come out. <laughs> wow. You know, and, and he couldn't he couldn't walk through the camps or whatever without a line of kids behind him, you know. These are like kids, British punk kids, you know, mm -hmm. all black piercings and wild hair, you know. What years was this, do you remember? This is, this is 19, yeah, it had to be 84, 85. And they said, yeah, you're very disappointed, you know, kind of think you led the kids the wrong way, you know. And, and plus, we heard that one of you guys is not even a Christian. Yeah, and they thought we were going to come there and, and get kids to repent of something, you know. And, but Mike started doing his hair wild. That's when Mike got out of the clean cut thing right. and started, you know, with the big hair and and so how did they find out that you weren't, at least when you arrived on England shores, that you weren't a Christian? Of course, you're about to leave a Christian. But. Yeah, I don't know. Huh. There was a great story to that. Is like when we get to Preston, we're late because we have to fly into London, drive up to Wales. Mm -hmm. Our first set is supposed to start at like 7 o'clock this night. And we're late. And we're rushing around, rushing around, setting up gear, you know, and it, all these people out there, you know. And we're in the back, in the dressing room, changing our clothes, and a group of people come in and go, okay, you guys ready? Yeah, let's pray. And so we get in this big circle, and we're holding hands. Everybody starts praying one at a time, you know, and it comes going around the room. You know, and I'm peeking out to see how close it's going to get to me, you know. Because, yeah, I'm not a believer. You know, I don't have any prayers or anything at this time. And just like two people away from me, you know, and this guy busts through the door coming. Okay, you guys got to go on now. You just got to go on now. And I was like, oh, wow, saved. <laughs> saved by the bell. I guess you could have said Ami Topa. And they were really kicked me out. Um, but, yeah, that was... That was quite the experience. And we came back and we did, uh, went in the studio and recorded All Fall Down. The 77s, mm -hmm. uh, then after All Fall Down, uh, end up on Island Records. Mm -hmm. right. Do you know how that came about? Well, yeah, um, we were always trying to get on a major label. Okay. You know, uh, Mary was uh, really, uh, that was her goal. It was to not 
just be a Christian band where only Christians heard you and all the other bands that kind of are in the same vein of us. They happened to be out in California and they were on these little labels, mm -hmm. you know, which Exit was one at that time. But she had in routes. She was like courting Bill Graham, mm -hmm. the music promoter. Mm -hmm and uh, his office trying to get us record deals and, and um, that's eventually how we got to Island through Bill, Bill Graham. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Island started off like a reggae Caribbean mm -hmm. label mm -hmm. and eventually was starting to pick up other groups like, of course, the most famous being U2. Mm -hmm. To a kid, me, I remember having that self-titled record on Island and of course your label makes of U2 and of course in your head you think these guys all hang out together. You know, you and Bono are you know, going down to 7-Eleven to get a Slurpee or whatever. Out for fish and chips. Yeah, <laughs> that too, yeah. But that's really not the case of course. Mm -mm. Never met the guy. So did you go to Island's office or was it just all matter through the mail? Or? All through the mail. Okay. Um, of course, uh, John Thompson has been on the podcast, and he mm -hmm. tells the story about basically the unfortunate event of your all's album coming out about a month or two. Before be Joshua Tree. Right. and yeah. that, So everything, even other artists on the label, get overshadowed by Joshua Tree. Mm -hmm. In that short time that you had Island's attention, did, did they promote you fairly well, or did, did they want you to go on tour or anything? Mm -mm. Not that I know of, no. Of course, we... You know, amongst ourselves, we always thought, well, that'd be cool, you know, if, mm -hmm. if we could, like, tour with you too, you okay, know, yeah. do something like that, label mates, mm -hmm. you know, tour. And then um, Joshua Tree came out, man, that was, that was it. Mm -hmm. You know, we were, uh, college radio was good to us. Right. You know, we were remained on college radio, and I think that probably was... Mike was and Jan were responsible for that because that's the kind of thing they would do on a regular basis is call uh, radio stations, stuff like that, try to get the music played. Mm -hmm. Mm kind of hoped and looked forward to that and and you know I think we actually felt like the tide was about to turn for us you know because Marion well Lewis didn't want us playing clubs and stuff he, he said it was Pearl before Swine I got you anyway Charlie had come in and that's the way Charlie made his money his living was playing clubs mm -hmm. and so uh, he said you know I can't I cannot stop playing clubs, you know, because uh, he had a, he had a big reputation in Sacramento. He was doing advertising work, everything. He was just riding like crazy. The Neelys, when they were saying, "Hey, you can't do this," was it because the band was on their label and they they were footing the bill, or was it a kind of like we're the your pastor, we're your shepherd, you kind of got to do what we say? In love, it was like. We don't think it's the best thing for you okay. guys. So it wasn't like they were being dictators. Yeah, but we don't think it's the best thing because what you do reflects on the church. So they weren't getting it, that, mm -hmm. that we could go out into the world and actually minister in some way to the world and bring people into the church. Mm -hmm. they, they didn't get it, but they got it. Right. But because Charlie started doing it and people 
And we were doing concerts at, at church. Every two weeks, there was a concert at church. Uh, and, and people would come in that weren't churchgoers. Yeah. yeah. Well, especially after Charlie became a Christian and started doing it. Because all his buddies every now are come would come to the warehouse to see a concert. Mm -hmm. You know, and that kind of thing just kept snowballing. You know, and then we, because Charlie was playing clubs now, now we were allowed to play clubs. The same thing happened for us. Man, we rehearsed every day, Monday through Friday, every day. We were so tight, friendships and mu the music, you know. Mike could sneeze and we'd, we'd know what to do. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It was just like that kind, that kind of camaraderie and musical camaraderie only comes about when you spend a lot of time together like that, you know, because a lot of little... A lot of little really exciting things in the live show usually occurred or because somebody did something one night and you figured, oh, that's pretty cool. And then they did it the next night and somebody would figure out, well, how can I complement that to make it something really special? And every single word makes me think I live forever. When I think about the fact that you just talked about you were studying under Alan Dawson mm -hmm. and all that, and I went back and listened to the the self-titled record. And may, again, I'm not a drummer, so it seems like in the song, uh, I can't get over it. Mm -hmm. The very beginning, if I was to hear any kind of like kind of fusion-y or kind of jazzy approach, but there, there's kind of movements in that song a little bit, or there's different feels throughout that song. Am mm -hmm. I right? Well, the, the intro is kind of fore foreboding. Mm -hmm. You say you're sorry, I can't get over it I said I forgive you, I can't get over it you And I'm actually playing a jazz ride. So I'm right, pack. okay. I'm not so stupid. <laughs> a little stupid, but not completely. Yeah, so anytime I could be, you know, kind of bring that stuff to the, to the table, I would. To me, that was perfect for that intro, you know, a mysterious sort of thing, and then it would go into the rock. They say the town heals every wound, I can't get over it. You thought the worst was over soon, I can't get over it. And then from there, from the rock, from that straight ahead rock thing, and the vamp is almost like a, a boogie woogie sort of thing, you know. It's like the ride is now on the floor, Tom. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's. So yeah, it went through through that 
it was normal progression for that sort of stuff, right? You know? Because then, in the end, you we had created this this foreboding dark sort of intro, and then um, uh, the music comes in, and then the ending was kind of getting back to that intro, you know, mm -hmm. because it gets it gets there again, you know, but different, you know, and that stuff just came. You no, know, we didn't plan that. You know? It just came organically. Yeah. And Mike always let you do what you want. Yeah. Everybody did what they wanted to do. If it didn't work, somebody would say, ah, it don't work. Or the person who wanted to do it would say, ah, that's not working. I need to come up with something different. You know? It's just a matter of listening mm -hmm. and being together. I don't want to take all your time talking about every 77's record, but uh, the live record, 88. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, I'm not a live album kind of guy because, again, the, sometimes the recordings aren't that great. Something is lost or it, it, it doesn't match with the memory you have of seeing them live. But that mm. one, I don't know how y'all did it, but it, it's fantastic. And another thing I'm not so keen on is drum solos. But <laughs> <laughs> the drum solo that you play, is, it's... Uh, it, you play it like an, I don't say like an instrument, like, like well, obviously it's an instrument, but you play it like someone would play a, a piano or a bass or, you know, the, it, every yeah. note seemed to be somewhat chosen. It wasn't just kind of this um, masturbation, as they would mm -hmm. say, you know. That solo that you played, was it kind of on the fly, or is it something you had developed over time? It was getting back to the jazz stuff. Okay. You know, that was the jazz influence. Because mm -hmm. um, Alan had this way of teaching you melody. Because mm -hmm. uh, he had this one thing out of the book. Where you, just, you have to pick a song, a jazz tune, uh, with a A-A-B-A form or something like that, 12-bar blues or something, and you had to sing it while you played the exercise. And then once you finished the exercise, you had to keep singing it and solo with what you were singing. That makes sense. And so it was developing a melodic approach to it. And it really, like, really helped your solo because now your solo is starting to make sense. You know, and if anybody's listening, mm -hmm. they're going to hear the song in your solo, mm -hmm. you know. And other jazz musicians would hear that, you know, which is how everybody solos, really. Right. Piano player, bass player, they're humming the tune in their heads. They remember the chord changes, mm -hmm. and they're playing against it or with that or against it, you know, but they're still within the form, and you can hear that. The form, yeah, I was going to say that's probably the perfect word because even guitar players, and I mentioned this to Phil Keggy, that sometimes it's, they're just doing calisthenics, mm. but they've lost the melody, they've lost the form, I guess you would say, mm. and that's a difference between, I think, a great guitar solo and one that's just you know, showing off how fast their fingers can go. Or, mm -hmm. you know. mm -hmm. Another thing about that particular song is your name. You know, I, guess, I guess your nickname comes out of this, A-Train. A yeah. I, growing up, of course, I knew the Duke Ellington classic mm -hmm. song, you know, Ride the A-Train. When Mike started that, you know, he just, it's just like one night he said it, you know. That song has a train beat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would assume and that's what he was. And he was going to ride that Catch the A-Train. Yeah. Well, Ellington song, Catch right. the A-Train, right. uh, through Harlem. Right. Um, which was a real train line in Harlem, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, you know, it was like, 
Come on, ride the A train. So that was just on the fly. He came yes. up with that, and it stuck. Yeah, that's good because Aaron Smith. The, it's such. A, <coughs> no offense, but there's so many Aaron Smiths I'm I sure know. out there. Tons <laughs> of us. If your mom had only named you John <laughs> Smith, <laughs> that would improve things. Oh come on! I can't hear you. Want to ride the A train? There it is. The A train Mr. Aaron Smith. Romeo Void. They were fairly legendary in the uh, the college alternative new wave, I guess you would say, circuit. Mm-hmm. I know that you didn't play on their first record, right. but you played on the second one. Mm-hmm. What were some memories from that? Good memories. Uh, well, mm-hmm. well, both. Both. Okay. I had uh, I was living in San Francisco, and I was commuting back up to Sacramento. I had worked with uh, this producer David Kahn down in San Francisco, and he was about to produce Instincts. The Romeo Void record. And Romeo Void had fired their drummer. David suggested, recommended me. Uh, so we had a meeting about it. <clears throat> I said yes. We started rehearsing for Instincts. But I was already in the 77s. So uh, 77s weren't playing, couldn't play, you know. So Couldn't play? Well, couldn't play clubs at that time. This is before Charlie's thing happened. So I was in both bands simultaneously. Romeo Void did tour. And I remember I was a very young Christian. It was like we had uh, just gotten back from Preston, Wales. It wasn't long after that that I met with those guys. And I remember we went out on tour. We were over near Stanford University playing this club over there. We had a little time to kill and me and Ben Bossy went walking over to a bookstore and I went in the Christian section and I saw this book, this, the title intrigued me, The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer, yeah. So I bought the little paperback and I took that on tour with me. And I read it pretty much the duration of the tour, the United States leg of the tour. And some of it, I, it, just, it was just mind boggling. It, it was over my head, you know. Yeah. And you know, I was going, is this guy saying I gotta like to really be a Christian? I gotta like go to a monastery or something? Yeah, mm-hmm. I you know I I was young. I was a baby right. believer. And for folks listening who don't know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, he was a German Lutheran, I guess. Lutheran pastor. Yeah, right. and he preached at <coughs> Harlem. Had a mm-hmm. church in Harlem. He taught at some seminary in in New York. Right. And Poland. when Hitler started to rise to power, he decided to go back to Germany to try to have some influence. Yeah. Because the, the Nazis were taking over the churches and saying you have to preach this or that. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually he would be involved in a plot to assassinate to Hitler. To assassinate Hitler. And uh, he was hung just a few days, I think, before the before, Allies yeah. reached uh, Berlin. Mm-hmm. So he really did live the, understand what the cost of discipleship would be. Right. And that, so that book would definitely be uh, foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. Because... Uh, it's pretty intense. Mm-hmm. So we're going on this tour, and I know that they're not getting along, but I don't understand the brevity of it until we start going out on tour. Frank and Peter, the bass player and the, and the guitarist, they rent a car all their own, and the rest of us are in a van, 15-passenger van, and uh, they never rode in a van. They always rode in their car. So and, that was a sign that something wasn't right? Yeah. Oh. And then we got a European leg of the tour, and we go over to Europe, and that's when it really comes out, because we all got to be on the same bus for the duration. And it got pretty testy. 
those two guys were very disrespectful to Deborah. That European tour was the last tour. That's when the band broke up. Yeah, you didn't try to facilitate any kind of a peace talks or. <laughs> no, I did not. You know, because I was in the seventy seventh. Mm -hmm. So, it's like. I was there. I was there for whatever I could get out of it and, and do it, you know. But my bond was pretty much with the 77s because we had so much in common, you know. And we were always together, And even though I was still living in San Francisco at the time. But before we went to Europe, we moved to Sacramento because I wanted my family to be in Sacramento while I was over in Europe, not in San Francisco. And my wife quit her job, and she was a stay-at-home mom. And at the time, we only had one kid, so we had a nice place out in Sacramento. I had already known that um, somehow when I got back home, I knew I was going to be in, in Sacramento. And I knew I was going to be involved with 77s and, and with church, because now I'm going to church. I am So I had a really great relationship with Ben Bossy, the saxophone player. He's a jazz guy too, and we were really tight. We were roommates during the whole year. That whole year we were roommates on the road. One great thing happened, a couple of great things happened, because CBS, we had a kind of a hit record with Girl in Trouble, was a temporary thing, and everybody's going, oh yeah, the next one. That's going to be the one. So they were smoozing us like crazy over in Europe. We always had a representative from CBS Records with us wow. in Europe. And it was their job to make sure that our needs were taken care of. We ate only at five-star restaurants. Dang. Yeah. Stayed at great hotels. Uh -huh. And they footed the bill. So it was really nice. We did a show in Paris. It was our last European show. We did the show in Paris. And we had a car. They gave us a limo, said, uh, let us know what times you want to be picked up if anybody wants to see Paris. But by this time, man, it's like you know, nobody wanted to be with anybody but me and Ben. Yeah. So me and Ben called for the limo. We get in the limo, and so here, here we are. We kind of look over each other, you know, because you believe this? You know, <laughs> here we are in Paris, and all we got to do is tell the guy where we want to go, uh -huh. you know. So we go to the Arc de Triomphe and... Uh -huh. You would go see the Eiffel Tower, you know, and, and but we stay in the limo. He's just cruising around, you know. And so we had gotten an invitation to come down to CBS. We had a, a luncheon there that we were uh, just before sound check or something, and we went. Was CBS aware that the band was in trouble? I don't know. I don't think so. And if they thought it was, I, I think maybe they were thinking, oh, it's just something the bands go there, sure. you know. So we go to this luncheon at CBS. It's all nice. And uh, this guy says, Are you guys familiar with Weather Report, right? And me and Ben go, yeah. He says, would you like, guys like to come upstairs and listen to their next record? It's not released yet. And it was like, yeah. <laughs> and so we go upstairs. Here we are on top floor of CBS in Paris. And there's this patio. And you could and go out there and just look all over Paris, you know. And we're listening to Weather Report. This brand new Weather Report record nobody's heard yet. That's never been in the air. I've searched so long, it seems it 
that was like the most special thing that happened out of that whole experience with Romeo Boyd. That me and Ben, you know, one of the well, it wasn't one of the last times we were together, but that moment mm -hmm. he and I shared, you know, that it was like really special. Those moments are impossible to plan. Yeah, it just happened. Yeah, no amount of money can buy it, yeah. really. You have to say yes. Yeah. You know, it's like the Japanese guy taking me out there. Sure. You have to say yes. Yeah, I bet that guy, that Japanese guy, by the way, is somewhere in Japan still telling that story. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> We're skipping a lot of history here, but again, folks can go listen on your podcast and in the catacombs to get a, a, a better outline of all these events. Mm -hmm. But eventually you would end up in Rich Mullins' band, the, mm -hmm. uh, and you would become a ragamuffin. Mm -hmm. you, were technically, you were technically a funk brother at one time. So you yeah, can, technically. Yeah, so now you can put ragamuffin on your resume. And he kind of put together an all-star band, the ragamuffins. Well, I, I don't think Rich did it. It was like, okay, Jimmy and... Jimmy and Rick had been playing with Jimmy Abeg and Rick, Rick Elias, Elias. Uh -huh. had been playing with Rich. I think Rich just wanted to change things up, and and so he needed a drummer and a bass player. Where Rick and Mark Robertson had played together in Rick's band, mm -hmm. and Jimmy and I had played together out in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. So Jimmy called me, and Rick called Mark. We went up. Because um, Liturgy, A Legacy, and A Ragamuffin Band had just come out. And he was to play Cornerstone. That was going to be my first gig with them, Cornerstone. I had been Cornerstone a lot with Sevens. And we go up to Indiana and we have rehearsal at this church that's surrounded by corn. It's cornfields. And here's a building just like planet in the middle of this right. cornfield, you know? That's Indiana. I, this is up in the flat parts, right? Yeah. Okay. I associate Rich with Wichita more than I do from Indiana. And he lived know. in a reservation for a while, too, right? Yeah, that was in uh, New Mexico. Right. Anyway. Window I, Rock. So you're out in the middle of the cornfields. Right? Yeah. And so, you know, we get, we get all these tunes we got to learn, you know? I'd never heard Rich Mullins. I'd only seen an album cover once when I was commuting here from Sacramento and I was doing a Margaret Becker record and I was living with Jan Vols and his family and I was going through his record collection and I pull out this album cover of this this guy Rich Mullins and he's sitting by a campfire you know he's got on all this great looking camp camping gear you know and, you know, and I go who is this and Jan goes oh that's Rich Mullins you know people consider him to be kind of like a little wacky. And I went, really? He doesn't look wacky. Uh -huh. He looks like so cosmopolitan here. He said, and we laugh about it. And I put the record back and that's it. My impression of Rich is that, man, this guy, you got to have it together for this guy, you know. He was particular about what he wanted? That's what I thought. Okay. My impression, just from the photograph. You right. Know? So, man, I learned, I learned all my parts, learned everything. And so did Mark. And we get to rehearsal. Mark and I are the only ones that know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> they haven't listened to anything, you know. 
It's like, wow, really? <laughs> and sometimes I find myself telling people what they should be playing. So you're the band leader again. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm just going, you know, right here when we get to that thing, there's this... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Thanks for showing up, guys. <laughs> <laughs> right? It was the weirdest thing. Cause, but I was, I was relieved because then the pressure's off. And then yeah. there's Rich. You know, he's got torn jeans, sandals. You know, he looks like he hasn't slept in like three months, you know. And he comes staggering in, you know. Nothing like the photograph I just saw. Uh, you know, it's, you know. The photograph's kind of like this L.L. Bean looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And um, <laughs> so it was kind of a relief, you know, because the, the pressure wasn't on. We had a great rehearsal. Had a great performance at uh, Cornerstone, and then we hit the road. And I think we're on the road for like three months. And we came to back to Nashville once. And I will be my brother's keeper, not the one who judges him. I won't despise him for his weakness. I won't regard him for his strength. The name Ragamuffin was taken from the Brennan Manning book, mm -hmm. Ragamuffin Gospel. H had you read it up to this point? Uh, no, I hadn't. And I read a little bit of it. I never could finish it. Mm -hmm. But what I did read was um, Owen Meany. Prayer for Owen Meany. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. I was told that that was required reading. Okay. Mm -hmm. I love that book. I still don't get the connection All right. other than it's a great book. Okay. <laughs> took up a lot of time uh -huh. in the van. I saw the movie. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. It's like they should they should have left it alone. All right. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. It doesn't do the book justice at all. Mm -hmm. So eventually something terrible happened mm -hmm. with Rich. Mm -hmm. uh, he was what, stopped on the side of the road to help somebody that had broken down. Is that right? We don't know. Nobody knows. Because the guy who was in the Jeep with him got amnesia from the from crash Ash, yeah okay so and rich died and and the truck driver he doesn't know why they were there you know um, so he didn't run off the truck driver oh no okay so a truck hit them yeah yeah he was devastated so do you remember getting that call mm-hmm yeah it was I think it was a Saturday morning and I was outside uh, doing lawn work the phone starts ringing, and one of my, I think it was my daughter, ran out and told me. And then she, I went and got a newspaper, and sure enough, there was an article. Yeah, that was pretty intense, because we were just getting ready to do what became the Jesus record. But at the time, it was just another record, you know, and Rich was do, had demos, and he was doing the uh, that play up in Chicago. He was doing the soundtrack for it, and he had a, something he had to be in Wichita for the next day. And he stayed up late in the studio and jumps in the, in the Jeep to drive to Wichita. That was that. Those fortunes I hoarded They were the well from which my poverty spread Oh, they led me to no greater glory And they left me with no less shame More recently, uh, some more tragedies kind of hit the band. Uh, mm -hmm. Rick Elias, uh, I guess, has brain cancer, mm -hmm. and it doesn't look good, mm -hmm. right? Doesn't. What are some? 
I hate to say it because uh, he's still with us, but what are some your favorite memories of working with Rick? Rick was all business, man. Didn't like messing around. It's like, do the sound check, get out of here, you know. And let's not fart around, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of guy, you know. Business, man. At one time there, he was, like, really busy here in town. He was producing. He hired us for records, other people's records and stuff like that. He's very loyal mm -hmm. and uh, kept us all really busy for a while. Rick was a hardball L.A. guy, you know. He come out of that scene, the L.A. scene. So it's a certain sort of personality trait that you develop in L.A., hustling, getting work. He, he had some of that. He knew how to do it. Swagger. Okay. Yeah. And he loved all those poor in spirit Just as they were He was a man of no reputation Have you talked with him? Oh, yeah. I've been out twice to see him. Once... A couple of weeks ago, my friend and his friend, Mike Radovsky, a drummer here in town, had a birthday, and uh, we were going to have a party here at my house, but Rick threatened to drive to the party, and we said, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> we'll have none of that, because, uh -huh. you know, he might go to sleep any minute, you know. Yeah. Yeah, when it hits him, you know, he's down. He could be driving, and, mm. you know. We said, no, 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 we'll come out there. And we asked Linda if we could bring the party out there, and she said, oh, sure, sure. So we took the party out there. We had a great time, you know, just sitting around talking. That's the last I've seen him. Uh, he started going to church and, ironically, started going to the same church I go to, you know. Yeah, I'll see him Sunday. Okay. Give him a hug for me. Yeah, I will. I still Before you became a Christian, you had explored Eastern spirituality, mm -hmm. and you had a guru, and you were meditating quite a bit. Yes. On occasion, we have folks on here from other faiths. Was there anything that helped you at the time make that bridge from being nothing to being a Christian, do you feel? Do you feel it prepared you at all? I grew up in church, an AME church. Mm -hmm. My mom was a singer. She was in charge of the children's ministry and all that sort of stuff. So when she went to church, I had to go to church. I went to choir rehearsals with her, sat out in the dark, out in the pews while the choir rehearsed, you know. And as I got older, you know, um, especially when we got a car, I stopped doing that. You know, I'd go pick her up mm -hmm. from choir rehearsal or sometimes I'd forget to go pick her up. A choir rehearsal. <laughs> and think about it like two hours later. Oh, man. Is she mad? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I knew I had grown up in the church. I didn't understand it. But, you know, there was never a, real, a conversion experience. And nobody explaining it to me. It's just, some, it's just what you did. Right. You know? You're going through the motions. Yeah. Yeah. You either went to this church or that church. Right. You know? So when I was in Boston... And I started going to Berkeley, and I was really listening intently, and I was learning harmony and stuff like that. And I was listening to Chick Corea and John McLaughlin and Wayne Shorter and all those guys. 
And the thing, the thing they had in common, Narda Michael Walden on drums, the thing they had in common was that they were all on some spiritual discipline thing. Chikoria was a Scientologist, mm -hmm. right? McLaughlin, Sri Bhagwan. It was a form of Hinduism, right? Yeah. 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 I can't think of the guy's name. Okay. Wayne Shorter was a Nishirin Shoshu Buddhist. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, maybe that's how you get there. That kind of gr greatness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because I didn't have any, you know, I, I didn't have any discipline. You know, I, I took like three lessons with Alan. And on the third lesson, he stopped the lesson, had me come sit down in front of him. And he pulled out this binder. And it was about that thick. And he was. And he said, look at this. And he started going. Mm -hmm. All those pages were covered. And he said, every one of these guys in this book wants your turn. That was it. I went, yes, sir. End the lesson. Okay, go on. Get out of here. Go on. I started practicing like a madman. I had been searching for some spiritual discipline thing to get into. The Rosicrucians freaked me out. Uh, Sri Bhagwan Rajneesh, I had a friend who, they called them orange people because they had to wear orange all the time. Yeah, the robes. And I went, nah, I'm not wearing orange all the <laughs> I, time. I don't look at an orange. Yeah. <laughs> and then the uh, McLaughlin's guru, whose name we can't think of right now, yeah. they had always had to wear white. And I went, no, nah, I'm not doing that either. <laughs> I came across Paramahansa Yogananda, um, Self-Realization Fellowship. You know, I started, Would he allow you to wear track pants? Yeah, you can wear anything. <laughs> yeah. And he had Jesus Christ in the, his lineage of gurus, which is another very intriguing thing. Sure. You know. And so I started doing that, and I really got into it. Man, I was, I was meditating. I started off meditating twice a day for an hour. You know, you start off, it's like 20 minutes because mm -hmm. you can't sit, sit still at mm -hmm. first. But then I, I, I kind of got it down to... I could meditate as long as I wanted to. And so it led to discipline and practice. I could sit down and practice and like the world didn't exist. Mm -hmm. You know, my mom gave me money so I could buy this uh, practice kit. It was rubber and wood. Mm -hmm. And I set it up in my apartment. And man, I would just go, go, go. And plus, you still, I was in Boston. So there was all these other guys who were like really good. You know, and so there's that competition and inspiration at the same time. Uh, the drummers. Yeah. yeah. And then I'd go to, I'd go to Allen every Tuesday, you know, get plugged in. Now that you're a Christian, do you feel that there's anything that um, is wrong with a Christian meditating? You know, I've asked myself that question, and I don't think so. You're not sitting at the foot of somebody worshiping them, um, and when you meditate, you're not, you're not worshiping. Right. Uh, Hare Krishna, or it's a very disciplining thing. Concentration, they say, is even healthy mm -hmm. because it slows down your pulse and your heart rate. You can relax, relaxation, and that sort of thing. So it did help you at the time. Yeah. Well, you know, I got into it just for the concentration thing because mm -hmm. before that, man, I could never concentrate, and I've lost some of that ability to concentrate since I stopped meditating. When I was meditating, I could play a show, I could play a gig, and and it was like I didn't come out of it until the music stopped. Right. I always wondered aloud that maybe Jesus being in the wilderness, or Paul, you know, when he went into the desert for a while, mm -hmm. or the, of course, 
after that, the Desert Fathers, they would call them, mm-hmm. if that wasn't some form of meditation, because obviously you stop. Mm-hmm. You're not doing much out there. Right. My old question was, how did they meditate? You know, was it just some thinking about something, being still, or just saying prayer at the time, or what, you know? That being said, how did Indians, East Indians, get into it? I mean, uh, maybe there's a connection somewhere, mm-hmm. you know. But then they went, they went really off in the deep end, you know, with the guru thing, you know, worshiping men and starting cults. Yeah. So you've been a Christian now for over 30 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, is, it, is it longer than that even? 80, since 1983. Okay. Mm-hmm. What are some things that you've learned along the way? I think everybody will say that their Christianity from their entry may be quite a bit different uh, as you grow. What are some things that come to mind that maybe has changed? I'm not so legalistic anymore. And I'm wondering that when people become Christians, I think they automatically become legalist. I can see how that transition happens to everybody. And then once you mature in your faith, you, or hopefully, you, you, you learn that you don't have to be. You only know your own experience, but do you think that, that the legalism maybe is because if you've left a life that's kind of chaotic, right. and anything goes, that you need to be legalistic, at least in the beginning, to kind of right. avoid temptation or become strong? Exactly. Yeah, because, you know, it's a whole different life now. And so, of course, you're going, oh, I can't do that anymore. Mm, can't do that anymore either. You know, I can't think like that anymore. You know, it's a lot of I can'ts and don'ts. And because you, it's such a different thing. True conversion is really different. You start seeing things differently and reasoning differently. I think people who are not Christians that have known you when you weren't and you're around them, they kind of get a sense that something has changed, you know. And sometimes it makes them uncomfortable. Sure. And that's when you get booted out of the pack, right. you know. I've learned some theology. I attend this church, and we used to have uh, these things called theology for breakfast every Thursday morning. And the pastor taught it, who's a great pastor. So I attended those sessions every Thursday before I joined the church, about two months before joining the church. And then within the church, we used to have another pastor used to teach these um, courses on theology. All of our pastors are seminarians. We don't do that stuff anymore. Because? Well, they have theology for breakfast. They do, but a lay person teaches it now, so it's not as interesting. Not as rich. Yeah. We don't have classes anymore like that. I don't know why. That's a bummer. Yeah. They made me an elder at church. So now the elders teach adult Sunday school. I think I only did it once or twice. Did you bring your drum kit? No. It would be so much easier if I could. (laughs) Because I could talk and... And drum at the same time. This Tom reminds me of... uh, um, 
Let's talk the Trinity. <laughs> We're going to do a, a three four. See these feet. three symbols here. Right. <laughs> you guys they know how to waltz a, because yeah. that's a, these three symbols that's they, a holy they all have a different function, <laughs> but they're all symbols. Right, right there. <laughs> There you go. I think we're on to something. <laughs> you know, that was a thing, too, that I think 3-4 was the holy beat because it was three, Trinity. Can I interject something? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> John McLaughlin's guru, Sri Shimoy. Okay. I know it's been buggered you. Yeah, it's been buggered me. 3-4. Whatever the, the, the waltz beat is. Yeah. Yeah. What because it, it was the Trinity, three. Oh. Uh, for a while, they were obsessed with the number three in the church. Yeah. I thought three, four meant, well, they only used, used three notes in a chord there, you know. I, the root, I, I, the so, fifth, and the seventh. And yeah, you're right. There was combinations. I remember them mentioning, oh, by the way, this was the holy uh, time signature. This was the, the, the key that Jesus would sing in. <laughs> right. I don't know. Too many notes. <laughs> but they have to be divisible by three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like in my life, on occasion, like something will happen, like an experience, or maybe I'll hear someone say something, and it'll be one of those, oh, something I've been hitting my head over the against the wall over, or you uh -huh. know, what are some moments like that that you can think of that were real threshold moments in your faith? Some of Paul's teachings in, in Ephesians, uh, you were called, predestined, chosen, uh, all those things. That was an aha moment. Because one time I, I was asked to preach at this church. A, f a friend of mine was the pastor, and he couldn't make it. So he asked me and this other guy if we'd preach. Have you ever preached before? Uh-uh. And um, we both were given like 20 minutes, 20, uh -huh. 25 minutes. I went on first, and I, and I preached uh, some verse in Second Peter that said you're called and chosen without knowing what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> why would I wonder why you would choose you? But that that's a, that's a lot of faith. Maybe he saw something in you. Yeah, well, he wasn't worried about losing his church. It it really didn't go over well because I was <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> was it, I, I was praise God. Uh, I was not in the right church to be called talking election and uh, chosen and stuff. Uh, I was in an Armenian environment and I didn't uh, know. Uh, okay, this is before I came hip to all that mm -hmm. sort of stuff, you know. When I found out what I had done years later, <laughs> what I had actually proclaimed from the pulpit, that was like, oh, yeah, that's what it was. That's why yeah. it was so quiet. Yeah. <laughs> people were throwing rotten fruit at you. <laughs> that's why I was never asked. Well, so let me ask you about that. Is it? Do you think when he's saying that, does he mean that... Uh, because some people interpret that as like the Calvinist that whether you're saved or not has nothing to do with your decision. You do, you have no free will. Right. Do you believe that, or, that or do you believe that you have the the, uh, the the free will to reject what God has called you to do or God has chosen you to do? Well, I think if God has chosen you to do it, you're going to do it. You may reject it at first, but somewhere along, along the line, you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, that kind of thing happened to me, too. That was another aha moment where I, I was uh, going to school at the School of the Arts in North Carolina. 
studying percussion, and our teacher took us to a concert. He said we had to hear this guy who's a vibist, and he was playing in a church. And so we all, as a class, you know, I'm the oldest guy in the class, you know, go to this church, and this guy's playing, like, I don't remember his name, but he's playing, like, the most beautiful vibraphone I've ever heard before or since. And while he's playing, speaking of teaching while playing the drums, he's giving his testimony. Really? While he's playing? Uh-huh. And he's, like, accompanying himself. And not missing a beat. Not missing a beat. Wow. And it's beautiful. And then he has an altar call. And I was supposed to go down. But I resisted that day. But I was like, when I take my dogs out and they get a smell, and I'm trying to pull them back in the ground. That's what it was. But I was like. I'm not going down there in front of all these guys. They're going to laugh at me. What would they think? When I did come to Christ, I looked back on that moment and kind of wished I had been brave enough to go down then. So, you know, I guess you could consider me a Calvinist. I'm more akin or more comfortable with the reform theological outlet outlook. So you'll have to school me on that. So that's more of a, you think that there is some uh, free will within the predestination. Is that right? No. I don't think you use your free will to accept Christ. I think uh, he reveals himself to you and and the revelation is so um, intense that you can't say no to it. Um, not that you can't say no. I think he's chosen us before we were born. It's something you're predestined to. Except. Do you think some people aren't chosen then? Well, you kind of have would have to, huh? Well, I mean, <laughs> it, well, I, I guess my theory is that we're, you know, he wants all of us in the fold, but then some just choose not to, you know? Well. It's, it looks, seems like it sometimes. Yeah. But some people, no matter how much they run, he catches up with them. You know? Yeah. And then some people can run forever. Right. Yeah, I don't think you can resist the Holy Spirit, a true calling. If you can, then he's not the Holy Spirit, you know. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. In power. Yeah, because I know people that have gone to church. You would not know that they were ever considered a Christian or ever set foot in a church because no fruit of, of that experience you know, is in their in their life. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I was thinking about this the other day because a prominent Christian musician, I don't know when it happened, but it went from being a Christian to being an atheist or agnostic, I think mm-hmm. is how he put it. And it really stunned me. Mm-hmm. And not that it ever changed what my experience has been, but it made me question, like, well, how could you go from talking to God, I assume that we all do when we pray, mm-hmm. to all of a sudden, like, he's not there, mm-hmm. he hang up on you, or, mm-hmm. you know, Mm-hmm. And it made me question a little bit, well, did he ever know? Yeah. Did he ever really believe? Did he just go that? through the motions because he felt like it was the right thing to do? Yeah. Or was he afraid? Yeah. Did he ever truly believe if he can give up on that? I think we can embrace sin and have a, a good time destroying ourselves and still believe. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that we're not on the right path. Well, here, here's a here's a good example uh, speaking about Rick. Rick Elias. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rick's a Christian artist. Mm-hmm. He's a Christian, mm-hmm. you know. But I think for a time there, like, he stopped going to church and everything and had probably had many invitations. 
And now he's going to church every Sunday. So I don't think he ever lost his faith. Maybe a lack of demonstration of his faith or something like that. I mean, I sit here, you know, right now, you know, I'm struggling with the church. I'm not struggling with my faith. Sure. I'm struggling with the organization. Right. You know. Yeah, I was with a pastor friend of mine uh, the other day. He said, yeah, man, the church is going underground. Mm -hmm. And I went, maybe, you know. Yeah. I heard this interview with Jerry Lee Lewis's uh, sister the other day. The interviewer asked her if she goes to church because she she sings a lot about sin and, and temptation and stuff like that. She says, well, no, I don't go to any one church in particular if I have... If I'm home and I had, you know, I'm not working and Sunday comes around, if I want to go to church, I go. If I don't want to go to church, I don't go. She says, but I am a Christian and I do love the Lord. Yeah, but I, I find it difficult to once, you know, how does the verse go? How can someone who wants believe, you know, walk away from it? Yeah. You know? I can understand more if someone's angry at God. That makes more sense to me. Even though I would assume that they've misunderstood something or mm-hmm. they're misinterpreting something. Because that's still not a denial of belief. It's mm-hmm. just like being mad at a friend mm-hmm. or being mm-hmm. mad at your parents. It seems, like, it seems like people, you know, if you leave because things didn't work out the way you thought they were going to work out if you became a Christian. Yeah. You know? We, we all have a direct line to God. We don't necessarily need the organized church. Mm-mm. You don't have to depend on a pastor to... Yeah, when you get to the point where you say you don't believe anymore, yeah. that's big. That's, that's 180. Yeah. You it'd know. be interesting if that person ever comes back, if they ever believe. It'd be interesting to see if they look back and say, you know, maybe I didn't believe the first time, but now I do. Yeah, and, and that's the whole thing about the Christian life and life in general. You know, it ain't over till it's over. You may glorify God... And then come to a point where you're just down and you reject him mm. and then uh, renew your faith again. Yeah. You know, it's between these two dates. You know? Right, right. <laughs> what, what's going to go down? You know, that song Mike Rowe wrote, called in an unguarded moment. That's all about that. You know, it's never too late. But, you know, it's better to do it now if, if you really feel the tug. Mm. Do it now. Don't wait till later because then you may be caught in an unguarded moment. These days, what are some of the projects that you're involved in that you're excited about? I'm working with Kevin Max from DC Talk. He's been not in DC Talk for like a long time, right? Yeah. He's had his own solo career. Yeah. yeah. But they, they started getting back together for the cruise thing. Now. Mm-hmm. We did the cruise last year and another cruise coming up. So that's been great. Through Kevin, I've gotten to play with some really, really good musicians. I come here, I come downstairs every day and I play. I really want to be a jazz drummer. You know, that's what I really want to be. I understand what it takes. I understand what it's supposed to sound like. But doing it is another thing. So when you say jazz, which jazz are you talking about? Bebop. Okay. Um, is there some guys in town that play bebop that you could put together? 
I did put together this thing called the uh, Jazz Messenger Project. It's uh, the music of the Jazz Messengers, Art Blakey and the Jazz mm -hmm. Messengers. And uh, we've done one gig. We have a rehearsal coming up a week from tomorrow. And uh, I want to do a, some sort of presentation with an educational, not just get up there and play a bunch of songs, you know, tell stories. Sure. Um, when we did it, the first time we did it, which is the only time we've done it so far, that's what I did. I, I It was a little awkward because we were in a small club. And I would get up and tell stories about Art Blakey mm -hmm. or tell stories about uh, the guy who wrote the next song we're going to play, play and stuff like that. I'd like for it to be a little more organized and have uh, a specific direction. The first time it was just off the cuff. You know, it was my idea, but it wasn't an organized idea. And um, we didn't have that many rehearsals. And I kind of, you know, the guys suggested, well, why, when we rehearse, why don't we just play the head of the song and one person take a really short solo and then we'll play the head and end. And I went, oh, okay. I should have never agreed to that. <laughs> What I am going to do is say, okay, when you solo, you only solo two choruses. You know, like Art Blakely said. Mm -hmm. If you can't say it in two choruses, you can't say it. Yeah. You know, and if you try to say it in more than two, two choruses, you're just going to start repeating yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, so you set up this boundary. You got two choruses to be the most creative you can be in in this song, mm -hmm. and we move on. Yeah. Uh, so when we were practicing here, the shortcut practice, when we got to the gig and we actually had to play the songs in their duration, something happened. For me, after we got past the stuff that we had rehearsed, it was like, uh-oh, you know, we got to keep going. Uh, got to make this interesting. And people were soloing and soloing and soloing until they got mm -hmm. tired. Yeah. And it was like, oh, no, we can't do that. It can't be done. So... That's what we're gonna do. Uh, two choruses. You got two choruses. Okay. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's okay. a sextet: trombone, okay. trumpet, sax, okay. bass, drums, piano. Cool. And you've been working for this guy, Sean Michelle. Sean Michelle. The, uh, the was it the uh, the black woman in a white man's body? Body. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. with a beard. <laughs> with a beard. <laughs> <laughs> I heard your interview with him. A part of it. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, Sean. We haven't worked that much, but man, when we have, it's been electrifying. You know, he is such a great performer. He's a very sincere Christian, one of the most sincere believers I've known in a long time. You know, Jay? Jay Newman, uh -huh. yeah, all those guys, man, Josh Stump, and all those guys, and they are, they are, they. I'm going to say a breed of Christians that, uh, man, really authentic, down to earth. Were I'm you like, involved with his record that is, hasn't come out yet? Yes, I played drums on that. Me okay. and Jimmy, Jimmy Abed got me that gig, and yeah, that record's almost three years old and hasn't come out yet. Yeah, actually, when I was on the Catacombs <laughs> podcast, I brought it up 
and they said what was the holdup? I guess this guy out of Memphis that yeah. has wanted to get behind it, but it's just taking time. Yeah, yeah. and it's st they still refer to it as the new record. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, Sean's great, man. Sean, they're going, they're on their way to Peru mm -hmm. for missions. They all, they do a lot of missions work, and um, he's a cool guy. I, I, I like Sean. Okay. Hey, thank you for your time, man. Yeah, man. Cool. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And if you still have a Jones for this kind of music and talk, you might check out In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 78, where we talk with John J. Thompson about the 77s, in addition to The Call and Mark Hurd. And there's also episode 134, where we sit down and get a small private performance by guitarist Phil Keggy. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, it's produced by... A closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by looking up Spun Counter Guy. If you want to say hi or send us nasty words, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. And you can find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and podbean.com. We'll see you on the flip side. You are